Over the past two Sundays, we have considered together God's special provision of life and love, his special provision of purpose and place. And today we consider his special provision of relationship. We've already seen how we were created for our relationship with God. The Lord formed Adam from the dust, breathed spiritual life into him. Then God placed the man in a garden which he had prepared for Adam. In this garden, humanity was to rest perpetually in God's presence. The Garden of Eden is not the place where God dwelled, mind you, but it's where the Lord communed face to face with the man, most likely through a pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. As we explored in the creation account, the Trinity is the eternal Godhead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is perfect in himself. The Son is perfect in himself. The Holy Spirit is perfect in himself. But there is only one God. Three, yet one. Eternally and perfect fellowship and unity. Same in substance, equal in power and glory, but different in function. No analogy exists in our finite minds whereby we can fully understand the mystery of the Trinity, but we can make two practical connections by looking at the family and the church. Regarding the family, God establishes marriage, which is necessary to fulfill the creation mandate of procreating husband, wife, children, a structure intended to reflect the perfect love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each person in the home equal in power and glory, but also different in function. In the Trinity, the Son submits to the Father and the Holy Spirit glorifies them both. In the Christian home, a wife follows the spiritual leadership of a godly husband, while the children should honor their father and their mother. Ephesians 5 verse 21 through Ephesians 6 verse 4 establishes such a pattern, albeit imperfect in a fallen world. But this does not mean that everyone will marry or everyone will have children. Jesus, the perfect man, never married. Still, Christ honored and loved his mother. He maintained friendships with women like Martha and Mary. The point is that being human involves maleness and femaleness. The point is that we need one another. To properly serve and obey God vertically, we must have corresponding horizontal relationships, and we enter into those relationships voluntarily. For instance, a woman voluntarily enters into marriage with one man and vice versa, and divorce should not be an option except in certain cases. Furthermore, we voluntarily enter into our church membership. 
Buck Parsons says, you can't love Jesus and divorce yourself from his bride. If you love Jesus, you'll love his church and love to worship with the church, albeit imperfect in this fallen world. The church is the continuing manifestation of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The church exists through God the Father's plan to gather a redeemed people under the lordship of God the Son by the effectual calling of God the Spirit. We are thus one person saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but we are also many as part of the body of believers. All in all, we were made in God's image for relationship, which our text for this morning unfolds. We are reading from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. This is God's word for his people. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds and of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We are built for healthy relationships with others as well as with ourselves. Jesus would later sum up the second half of the moral law saying, Love your neighbor as yourselves. A subtle, albeit essential aspect of this command is that you must love yourself, you must see yourself as God sees you in Christ before you can love others as you ought. Verses 18 to 24 of chapter 2 establishes relationship with others. We will spend most of our time here. Verse 25 then somewhat addresses relationship with self. First, relationship with others. After creating man in his image, the Lord declares, not good. And the words not good do not mean evil, only that something remains unfinished. It's not good for man to be alone. God has yet to make a helper corresponding to him. Day six, you see, is not over. We read that out of the ground the Lord God had formed all of the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens. The Lord brings before Adam the beasts 
and the birds that he had already made. The pluperfect verb had formed, as we find in the English Standard Version translation of verse 19, by far makes the most sense. Reading it differently would suggest that God tried to find a helper for Adam by making a host of animals appear before him, only to realize that none of the animals matched with him. That's just tomfoolery. The animals were already in existence prior to the formation of man. They were first formed out of the ground. Then Adam's body was formed from the dust. There is a clear connection between the two as living creatures. Undoubtedly, animals have their own dispositions. And some animals bring greater companionship and help to humanity than do others. Would you consider yourself more of a dog person or a cat person? Both types of animals provide companionship and we can develop significant attachment to them. We have a toy poodle named Swayze. Swayze Fields, to be precise. And he definitely has a distinct personality. You see, he is eight pounds of loving this toy poodle. And I know that there are those of you like Justin who don't believe that eight pound dogs can be a dog, but he is nevertheless a wonderful, wonderful pet. He's got his zoomy mode. He's got his animal hunting mode. He's never caught one to my knowledge. His anxious mode, his lap, Dog mode. He's a cute little fellow. He really is. And the kids consider him part of our family. And then think about animals like livestock and their purpose. They would have assisted man in cultivating the ground, and they would later serve as animals in the Levitical sacrificial system. Nevertheless, the text makes it clear that even from among cats and dogs, even from among cows and bulls and sheep, no corresponding helper is found for Adam. While the physical elements are the same, only man was created in God's image. Only man had the breath of God breathed into him. Only man is a spiritual being. So the Lord brings the animals before Adam to make him aware of his profound need. Very likely the animals were brought in pairs, just as in the case we will see when they walk into the ark. But the animals like us, were made for relationships. They were made to have relationship each with its own kind. The Lord then brings them to Adam to see what he would name them. And that's part of Adam's taking dominion. By naming the animals, he's exercising a certain authority over them. But in Scripture... Naming also has to do with fully understanding, with properly laying hold of something. If you don't have a name for something, you don't have a way of correctly dealing with it. J.K. Rowling illustrates this principle in her Harry Potter book series and the reticent use of Voldemort's name. I will tell you every Sunday morning when we get in the car and we're driving home, I'll ask my family 
um, what part of the sermon did they remember or did, you know, stood out to them or did they like or dislike? Well, usually not the dislike part. And, but, but this Sunday, I know for an absolute fact that Whitman's going to say this is the part that he remembers because he is a Harry Potter, um, I don't know, huge fan, right? Super fan. I must confess that I have only read The Sorcerer's Stone. And at the end of that book, Harry and Dumbledore are talking to each other when Harry begins to say the name of Voldemort. Yet suddenly, Harry Potter quickly changes to what is the familiar, you know who. Dumbledore replies, call him Voldemort, Harry. Always use the proper name for things. Fear of a name increases fear of the thing itself. Dumbledore is telling Harry Potter that he can only properly understand, that he can only properly deal with Voldemort when he calls him by his rightful name. In naming the animals, Adam thus shows an understanding of them. He rightfully deals with them for what they are and for what they are not. No animal looks like Adam or acts like him. No animal speaks with Adam when he gives it a name. No animal is alone. Each has its own mate, but not so for Adam. Verse 20 says, there was not found a helper fit for him. And the word for helper is Aetzer. Of the 21 total times the word appears in the Hebrew Bible, 16 of them refer to God coming to those in need. The psalmist sings in chapter 33, verse 20, the Lord is our help and our shield. In Psalm 121, 1 and 2, we hear, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Kenneth Bailey, who has spent his entire adult life studying and teaching the Bible in the Middle East, says that the word Aetzer never refers to a lowly assistant, but always to a powerful figure who comes to help someone who is in trouble. That is certainly true with God's gift to me and my wife, Brooke. I can safely say that I need her far more than she needs me. And that's not just some brownie point comment that I'm making from the pulpit. The Apostle Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 11:9, For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Maybe you have heard the riddle, what is most like half of the moon? What is most like half of the moon? When telling it to children, you might hear different responses, like half of an orange, half of a basketball, maybe half of a slice piece of Swiss cheese. But what's the correct answer? The other half of the moon. So if we were to ask what is most like a man, the answer is a woman. Because when we read about the creation of the woman, we learn that she comes from the side of the man. And that's a distinction that is important for us to flesh out, pun intended. In verse 21, we read, And the Lord God caused a deep 
sleep to fall upon the man. The Hebrew word for deep sleep is tardama, which is not the typical word used for sleep in the Old Testament. Tardama is only found 14 other times in the Hebrew Scriptures. In each case, it means a death-like sleep. For our purposes, the best Old Testament example probably comes from Genesis chapter 15, immediately after Abram makes a sacrifice to the Lord. Verse 12 of that chapter reads, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. The language is ominous. It's deathly. And the reason that I say that Genesis 15 serves as the best example for the purpose of our passage this morning is because God establishes a covenant with Abram immediately following his coma-like sleep. In the same way, God plans a covenant right after Adam's deep sleep. It's the covenant of marriage. Henry Morris says, It seems as though Adam died when as yet there was no death in the world, all in order that he might obtain a bride to share his life. That's an important connection that I will return to momentarily, but I want to read that quote to you again. It's such an important one. It seems almost as though Adam died when as yet there was no death in the world, all in order that he might obtain a bride to share his life. Yet to say that the woman was taken from Adam's rib is an inaccurate translation. The Hebrew word here again is zelah. In our passage, it's correctly rendered as a person's side. It is only figuratively understood as a rib. So a section of Adam's side was removed, including a rib. It would have been both flesh and bone as well as blood that was released from the open side. So while man is made from the dust of the ground, not so the woman. She's made from the man. So Adam calls her woman. He is rightly dealing with her. Some of you may have heard Matthew Henry's beautiful quote, Woman is not made of Adam's head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, near his heart to be loved by him. Remember that the woman's strength and honor is as the man's help. And then reflect on Paul's words in Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now is not the time for me to preach a sermon on all the practical implications and applications here, only for me to highlight the way that Paul instructs for a godly husband to serve and sacrifice for his wife, just like Christ did for his bride, the church. 
And that is what this text would have me preach. Pay close attention to the words recorded in John chapter 19 and verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and once there came out blood and water. Do you catch it? John 19, verse 34, marks the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 2. The side of Christ was pierced at Calvary. We realize that just as Eve was built from the side of the first Adam, so the new Eve, the church, comes from the side of Jesus as our second Adam. Whereas Adam would figuratively die for his bride, Christ would die. And such a reconciliation through the cross is a bloody ordeal. Indeed, our lives depend on the shed blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Just before Christ's side was opened, catch it, y'all. Just before his side was opened, he enters into a deep sleep of death in order to bring forth the church as his bride. Christ is dead, taken down from the cross to be buried in a borrowed tomb. And yet, whenever Adam awoke from his deep sleep, the Lord brought the woman unto the man to be with him from that time forward. Jesus teaches in Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore? God has joined together that no man separate. In a like manner, when Christ arose victoriously from the slumber of the grave, the church would be and is still being built. What a marvelous thing it is to consider that just as God presented Adam with Eve, so too the Father will do it again with his beloved Son. The Apostle John says in Revelation 19, verses 6 and 7, Hallelujah. The Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. What a special provision to know that this is our future. To know even here and now that if we are united in Christ through his death and resurrection, nothing can separate us from him. Shall tribulation, our distress, our persecution, our famine, our nakedness, our danger, our sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Keeping this assurance in our hearts and in our minds that nothing can pluck us from the hands of our bridegroom Jesus. It should help us in how we relate with ourselves. Relationship with self. Verse 25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Naked and not ashamed is a Middle Eastern way of saying, I can be myself without masks. I don't need to create a false self to present to others. I can be who I am and not be ashamed. Do you know that God created Adam and Eve in such a way as that? No need to cover up, no need to hide, no sense of shame, nothing to regret, nothing to confess. Adam and Eve could have initially just stopped and rested and meditated on all that was good. Only verse 25 serves as a bridge verse for us to chapter 3. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, we often fail to see ourselves as beautiful. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, we often feel a sense of shame, don't we? Adam and Eve had stood before God naked and unashamed, but no longer. Now we too frequently avoid the presence of God. We run and we hide from Him, fearing deep exposure. We don't like to sit quietly in God's presence because of what it might reveal to us about ourselves. And so we busy ourselves. We busy ourselves with constant noise. We busy ourselves with work. We busy ourselves with recreational activities. We busy ourselves even with spiritual activity, all because we fear being alone in the presence of God. We fear our masks being removed. Furthermore, Adam and Eve had stood naked before each other. They could completely be themselves, open and unashamed. But no longer. Well, to be naked before one's husband or wife and loving intimacy is beautiful. Even in the best of marriages, partners fear some degree of exposure. Even in the best of marriages, there are inner feelings, there are insecurities, there are past deeds that we fear sharing. And in the church, we also hide, don't we? The place where we should be most prone, the place we should be most prone to come and confess our sins is often the place where we do not bring them to light because we're afraid. And what are we afraid of? We're afraid that other sinners who have been saved solely by God's grace will judge us 
instead of walk beside us, instead of helping us to claim victory over the sin or the sins that grip us. We think to ourselves, I can't be honest with anyone about this or about that. So we keep our sins hidden in the darkness, ashamed. And to be ashamed in Hebrew expresses a sense of confusion. It expresses a sense of embarrassment and dismay. It's the antonym of the word for trust. Apart from their sin in the Genesis, Adam and Eve trusted. They were not ashamed. And I mean, I know I've made several references to Hebrew, but I, I have to make one more here because these three words in Hebrew are actually just one single Hebrew imperfect verb. And it is a verb that contains frequentive use. It is a verb that reflects continuous activity. It means that they were always, continuously, completely trusting. Continuously, completely trusting. For you and me, to regain victory over our guilt and over our shame, to love ourselves as we ought in order to love others as we should. We must clothe ourselves in the righteousness of Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, and naked come to thee for dress. Do you need to come naked to Jesus for dress today? You don't need to hide in the darkness of shame any longer. Just place your trust in the gospel. That Jesus lived a sinless life in order to die for our sinful one. That Jesus rose victorious over death in order to claim us as his bride. In Christ, you can be fully loved. You can be fully received. You can be fully restored. No more masks. No more hiding. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation unto everyone who believes, not ashamed of the gospel, to have continuous, complete trust in Christ. Continuous, complete trust in the gospel. I am not ashamed. Oh, that you would let the gospel define who you are, to define how you see yourself, and to define the way you relate with God and with others. 
Our song of invitation today is a bit different. I'm not going to ask you to stand. I'm not going to ask you to sing. I'm going to ask you to pray. I'm going to ask you to listen to the words that Laura sings and that you would come out of hiding. Whatever you are hiding from today, whatever you are ashamed of today, I'm asking that you lay it bare before the cross of Jesus. I'm asking that you say, I don't want to have a mask on anymore. I want to be continuously, constantly trusting in the grace, the love that you have shown for me to come out of hiding and into the presence of our Lord. You can pray where you are. You can pray at the altar. This is not an invitation <clears throat> For unbelievers, yes, if you need to get right with Christ, the invitation is always open. But this invitation is for all of us because all of us, all of us are dealing with, have some sin in our lives that grip us, that, that some shame that we bear. And you know what? The gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because Jesus Christ has bought me back as his bride. And I can stand in the presence of the Father unashamed. Pray as Laura sings. Come as Laura sings. The altar's open. Pray where you are. Let's worship.